Matthew chapter 21, we'll be looking this morning at verses 23 through 32, and this is God's holy word for us this morning. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then, also, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, Lord, we know that there is much here that we need to, um, to hear from you, to understand. And I would pray, God, that you would specifically work this morning in this message to help us to bow to you, to yield to your holy authority. Change our lives. Make us more like Jesus. Do with us what you will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. How do you think our culture, the culture we live in, how do you think our culture feels about the word authority? I think to a lot of people, the word authority is almost a dirty word in our culture. Many of us hate the notion of anybody having the right to tell us what to do. By the way, is that you? Do you really chafe at the concept of somebody telling you what to do? But without an establishment of authority, can you imagine what society would be like if there was no such thing as authority? We'd live in chaos. We need leadership. We need good leadership as a society. We need godly leadership. Authority may bother some folks, but what if we had an authority who was perfect? What if we had an authority who was loving? What if we had an authority who was willing to lay down his own life and give away his own comforts for our own good? By the way, you'd vote for that kind of authority, wouldn't you? And we have that kind of authority in the person of the Lord Jesus. And we want to be under that kind of authority. 
So if you're a note taker here this morning, make room to write down four main points. And we're going to jump right in, working through a passage that highlights for us the authority of Jesus. You could title the whole thing, The Authority of Jesus. Our first point this morning, honestly consider the authority of Christ. Honestly consider the authority of Christ. Verse 23 says to us, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So our passage begins this morning, and Jesus is walking in the temple and teaching. That probably means that he's moving around the area called the Court of the Gentiles in the Old Temple. That was the place from which he had just recently driven out the animal sellers and the money changers. And that was a perfect place for Jesus to have the opportunity to speak to people and to proclaim the truth of the kingdom of God. The court of the Gentiles is the, was the outermost court of the temple. And it had in it what the Bible says to us are several porches, or sometimes they use the word colonnades. So you could picture the outer wall of the temple as the outer boundary. And facing the inside of that courtyard, you've got roofs and pillars holding up those roofs, and the wall is the backmost border. So these shelters may have been opened on three sides, and the pillars, these columns at the front. And these would have been great places for groups to get out of the Middle Eastern sun. They'd have been a great place to enjoy a nice breeze and listen to a teacher. Well, but on Sunday and Monday, that place was a marketplace, noisy and raucous and ugly. But here, Jesus puts this place to its proper use. And he's teaching God's kingdom. And out comes a gathering of Jewish leaders, and they want to confront Jesus. This was no little deal, by the way. This, this was the highest ranking group of temple officials you could find. The text doesn't say to us that the high priest was there. But this is the kind of group that could have included the high priest and all the other high-ranking officials and scholars. And this splendid group approaches Jesus and they ask him two questions regarding his authority. By what authority has Jesus done what he has so recently done? And who gave him that authority? Now what's fascinating here, folks, is that these men are asking Jesus a set of tremendously important questions. Fewer questions of more importance could ever be asked. But this group is asking their questions not out of interest, but because they want to trap or discredit Jesus. When the Jewish leaders ask Jesus about his authority, they're trying to publicly put a demand on him that he produce for them his credentials. They want him to prove that he has the right to do what he's been doing. You know, when I was ordained in a small Baptist church back in Illinois, I think it was 1996, I was given a certificate of ordination. When I graduated from Southern Seminary in Louisville, that was 2003, I was given a degree, which was a certificate. It had the signature of Dr. R. Albert Moeller on it, the president of the seminary, still one of my favorite autographs that I have. And these 
pieces of paper. They're important to me. The paper I was handed at graduation says I completed the seminary requirements for the Master of Divinity degree. The ordination certificate, that's a piece of paper that says that the church that I was a part of recognized me as a someone who was called by God to the ministry of the gospel. Now, neither one of those pieces of paper changes me. It'd be nice if either one of them would make me good. Neither one of those pieces of paper qualifies me for anything. But they do show that I've been approved by others for certain kinds of service. Well, first century rabbis went through an ordination process too. And by the time of the first century, that process was overseen by the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. A potential rabbi would be taught, he would be examined, he would eventually be given the right to teach. And the Jewish leaders want Jesus to say, who said you're allowed to do this? Who's your teacher? Produce your paperwork. But how many sermons have we been in Matthew so far? Several, right? I think I heard the number, like we're in the 70s right now. God bless you all. Have you ever seen anything in Matthew that said Jesus ever set any store by the opinion of the Jewish leadership? No. Jesus' authority came from his identity as the Son of God who came to earth in the flesh. And that's always been a point of amazement to the people. If you look back to Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last verses, in, in 28 and 29, it tells us this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught as one with authority in himself. This is amazing. Jesus had never been formally trained or licensed to teach by the rabbis, but Jesus spoke a stronger, a clearer, a more powerful message than ever did the Jewish rabbis. But then add to that, when Jesus spoke, you know what he told them? He told them, this is what God says, do it. Jesus didn't spend all of his time citing a teacher who cited a teacher who cited a teacher who cited another teacher who quoted this book, who quoted that book. No, Jesus just said what God said and that was the end of the matter. And then there was another time Jesus really stunned the people with his authority because he specifically claimed to have the authority that only God has, the authority to forgive sins. In, in chapter 9, right around a miracle, verse 6, Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus, in that miracle, claimed authority. He claimed the right to forgive sins right in front of Jewish leaders. By the way, what are sins? Sins are violations of the law of the standards of God. Is that a fair definition for you? 
with me? That's an incredible claim that Jesus says he can forgive those. See, I can only forgive sins committed against me. You can only forgive sins committed against you. Right? If, if Kelly went over and stole David's wallet and, and I said, Kelly, I just want you to know I forgive you. What's missing here? David's wallet, for one. But David's the one offended. He's the one who has to forgive or there's, it's not done. Right? I don't have the power to forgive a sin not committed against me. For Jesus to forgive sins committed against God is for Jesus to declare that he has the authority of God. It is for Jesus to declare that he is God. And that authority from Jesus is evident in his actions. What did Jesus just do this week? He rode into the temple on a colt, on a donkey, and he declared himself to be the promised Christ. And then he went into the temple and he commanded the money changers and the animal sellers to get out of the court of the Gentiles. But who has the authority to say how the temple is supposed to be used? The Jews assumed that that authority belonged to the Sanhedrin, but Jesus just claimed it for himself. And the only way for Jesus to claim the right of rule over the temple, a right higher than that of the priests, is for Jesus to claim to have the rights of the owner of the temple of God himself. So on the one hand, it makes some sense that the Jews are asking about Jesus' authority. In fact, they should ask. In fact, you and I should ask. Does Jesus, and I want you to really think about this, especially if you're struggling. Does Jesus have the authority to tell us who God is? Does Jesus have the authority to tell us what God intended in the Old Testament? Does Jesus have the authority to cleanse the temple? Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? Because if he does, then he is God. Because only God has all that authority. And if Jesus is God, friends, and if Jesus has the authority of God, what should, what must your response to him be? He's your creator. He's your Lord. Whether you want Jesus to be your Lord or not, he will be. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord, the Master, the King of Kings, our greatest authority. I'm trying to remember which Puritan it was. I think it might have been Richard Sibbs who said, Is it any wonder... That, that, that we're, we're so confused because so many 
would say, I will not bow and have Jesus as a gentle master. And they would instead prefer to bow and have him as a powerful, mighty judge. Take the gentle master route, guys. Christian, examine your life here this morning. Where, where do you ignore the authority of Jesus? And by the way, if you say, I never do, you are a confused little Christian. <laughs> do you look at the commands of God and say to yourself that you cannot or will not follow them? Do you ever look at the word of God and say, I just won't do this one? That is you refusing to recognize the authority of Jesus. Repent. Turn away from any thought that makes you think you have the right to oppose the authority of Jesus. Turn from any thought that you might have that would allow you to stand against the authority of God. Now notice in our point, I said we are to honestly consider the authority of Christ. You could underline that honestly. Why? Why do we add in the word honestly here? I would add that word in because the Jews, when they ask Jesus their question, are not asking him an honest question. They thought they could trap him. They expected Jesus to say one of two things, and they thought they had him either way. They figured we could either discredit Jesus or destroy Jesus, depending on how he answers us. Because you see, if Jesus had said to the guys, I don't have any credentials... They could say, then you have no right to do what you've done. They think they can embarrass Jesus. They think they can make the crowds turn away from Jesus. But if Jesus actually looks them in the eye and claims to be God, then the Jews, what are they going to do? They're going to call him a blasphemer. In fact, they'll probably at that point pick up stones and attempt to kill him on the spot. And you say, Travis, how could you think they would do that? Because they did it once before. In John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33, Jesus, he wrapped up some glorious teaching on how secure we are when we have faith in in Christ and how God keeps us. And he wraps it up with the statement of verse 30, I and the Father are one. Verse 31 says, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, and it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. They've tried it before. Well, what will Jesus do? This sounds like a really nasty catch-22. If I say, yes, I have credentials, they'll demand to see them. If I say, no, I don't have credentials, it's bad. But you know what? Jesus is infinitely wise. Jesus cannot be trapped or tricked by your clever arguments or mine. And Jesus is going to use his answer to show that the people asking are not asking with honest motives. Look at Matthew 21, 24 to 26. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. This is great. Jesus says, I'll make you a deal. You asked me a question about authority. If you will honestly answer a question from me about authority, then I'll answer a question for you about authority. You can't get fairer than that, now can you? So guys, is the baptism of John the Baptist from heaven's authority or man's authority? Jesus is saying, hey, was John the Baptist in his ministry, was that legitimate or illegitimate? Was it from God or sinful man? And Jesus, by asking this question, puts the priests in a pickle. If they say John the Baptist was a sinful man with no authority, the watching crowds are going to be outraged. It was about four years earlier when a great many people, including probably many who were there in the temple, went out to the Jordan River to John the Baptist to be baptized. They wanted to express their desire to turn away from sin, and they wanted to be made ready for the arrival of God's promised king. And they thought John was the first speaking prophet in 400 years. But if the Jews say John's actions and teachings are sinful, the crowd is going to turn their back on the priests. I mean, it'd be like... You know... Movies always start with that scene where, some, where the villain just does something mean. So you know he's the bad guy, right? This would be the priest kicking a puppy. We, you can't say John was evil. I mean, everybody loved him, and the evil Gentile, you know, the evil rulers killed him. You can't say that. They'd be in trouble. But if the priests say that John the Baptist was a prophet from God, then they're in even worse trouble. Because John told the priest that they needed to repent. And John made it clear that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one from God. John said Jesus has the authority of God. So if John spoke from God and John said Jesus came from God, then the priest would have to acknowledge the authority of Jesus because Jesus is God. So the Jewish leaders huddle up. And they discuss their options. And they know they're between a rock and a hard place here. If they are honest, if they deal with Jesus honestly, if they deal with Jesus honestly, they will either A, submit to his authority, or B, be in open defiance against his authority. They will either bow to God or they will turn against God, but they don't have any middle ground left to stand on. And dear Dear 21st century friends, this is you and me too. If you honestly consider the authority of Jesus, you have to make one of two choices. You either bow to Jesus and surrender to him, or you try to fight with him and you're judged. Even as a Christian, you will either obey the word of God, the commands of Jesus, or you will fight against your Lord. Let this call you, let this section call you right here today, not just to snicker at the Jews, 
Examine your life and ask yourself, are you rightly, willingly obeying the authority of Jesus? Second point. Second point. Beware the dishonesty of rebellion. Beware the dishonesty of rebellion. Verse 27. So they answered Jesus, "Uh, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Did you hear it, friends? The priests responded to Jesus with a lie. They looked at the Son of God and lied to His face. You bold enough to do that? The priests say, oh, we don't know. But you know what they think in their hearts? They think they know exactly the answer to Jesus' question. They just don't want to say it. Because they rejected John the Baptist. They rejected John's teaching. They would not repent, but they don't want to say that out loud They don't want to have to answer the question, and so they lie. And Jesus, in response, refuses to answer the question that they asked about his own authority. Jesus has proved at this point that the leaders will not deal with him honestly, and so he refuses to give them any more information. Now, if you read through the gospel according to Matthew from this point on, you're going to notice something that is absolutely terrifying. This is spine-chillingly terrifying. From this point further, Jesus does surprisingly little teaching that is heard by the Jewish leaders. When Jesus is done with this teaching on this day, it looks like the Jewish leaders are no longer hearing him. When Jesus is arrested and placed on trial, do you remember what Jesus said to them when they brought him in? Do you remember? He said nothing to the entire Sanhedrin. He looked at men who refused to deal with him honestly and he stopped communicating the word of God to them. And the reason I make this a separate point is because it's so significant. Friends, there is a tremendous danger in being dishonest with God. There is a tremendous danger in refusing to tell the truth to God. There is a tremendous danger in lying to God about what God has actually shown you to be true. So stop, stop and tremble because to lie to God is to place yourself at risk of the judgment of God. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, listen to me, again, please listen. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there may come a day when God stops telling you truth.
Instead, there may come a day when God gives you over to your own sinful desires and allows you to believe the lies you keep telling yourself. Don't let that happen. Don't. It'll kill you forever. How how do we avoid that kind of danger? How do we avoid that? Admit the truth of God. You've got to admit that you know there is a God. You've got to admit you know God exists. You've got to admit that you know that his word's true because it's different than anything else that's ever been said. You've got to admit that the commands of God are binding on you because you are a creation of God. You've got to admit that God, Jesus, is your Lord and you are his subject. We've got to turn away from trying to rule our own lives and rule our own selves. And we've got to place our trust in Jesus and we've got to come to Jesus for mercy and for salvation. Now, many of you Christians probably right now are going, oh, I know someone. Boy, I wish so-and-so would hear this. Aren't you glad Christians never lie to themselves and deceive themselves? Take a peek at Hebrews chapter 3. Because we're not free from the danger of the deceptive destruction of dishonesty. We are not free from the danger of the deceptive destruction of dishonesty. Hebrews 3, have you found it? I want you to see this with your eyes because we're talking to Christians here. Hebrews 3, 12, 3, 12 and following. Take care, brothers. By the way, you know what that means? Watch out. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you, who's he talking to? Who's he talking to, Christians or non-Christians? Because he just said, take care who? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Christians, does that make you shiver just a little bit? If it doesn't, I'm afraid something's wrong. God tells us, be careful, watch out, take care. He says, what do you watch out for? You've got to watch out for unbelief, even among yourself. God says, how do I watch out for this unbelief? Isn't it the weirdest answer? Wouldn't you think study more books would be the answer there? How do I watch out? Listen to a podcast. How do I watch out for unbelief? 
He says regularly be around the people of God and encourage each other. Did you see that there in that text? Protect each other. Watch out. Why? Why? Because your sin is dishonest. Your sin is deceitful. Your sin is deadly. Right now, if you look around the room, if you look around the room, who don't you see? Yourself. You can see anybody else in this room you want to look at, but you can't see you. And you will be dishonest about how smart you are or how good you are or how obedient you are. And you will trick your rotten little heart if you're not around brothers and sisters in Christ and listen to them more than you listen to yourself. The author of Hebrews tells us, be around each other. Listen to me, if you set your mind, if you fill your mind, if you set your beliefs with the world and not with the word, you will be deceived. If you find yourself influenced by the lost more than by the saved, you're in danger. If you fill your mind with the dishonest arguments of the media, because they're trustworthy, or of Hollywood, because they've got it together, Or simply, if you fill your mind with the kinds of thoughts and reasoning that come to you from the lost person at your job, or at the store, or at the gym, you are risking allowing yourself to be hardened by the dishonesty, the deceitfulness of sin. A desire to disobey God will lead you and me to an unwillingness to be honest with ourselves or with God. Because we will lie. We'll say, God has not really done enough to show me that there really is a God. By the way, the word of God says, yes, he has. We will twist the scriptures and we'll say, maybe God didn't really say this thing because I don't like this command. Maybe it doesn't apply to me. We'll lie and we'll pretend that we know more than the scripture about who God is or how God ought to treat us. And friends, that's deadly. Beware. Watch out, because that kind of rebellion is a symptom not of you just being confused, dear friends. It's a symptom of personal dishonesty, because sin will drive you to dishonesty. Third point, we'll go back to Matthew. Obey with action and not empty words. Obey with action and not empty words. 28 through the beginning of 31. Matthew 21, in case you forgot where we were. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? 
They said, well, the first. Now, let me pause this for a second here. Um, if you were reading this in a translation that's not the ESV, that may have come in a different order. Did any, did any of you feel like that was out of order? Any NASB folks? I think maybe a King James may do that. Anyway, there are certain manuscripts that some have been translated off of that just reverse the orders of the sons. And so the, the first son you know, says yes and doesn't go, and the second one says no and goes or whatever. But the, in any reliable version, the point is still very, very much the same. Jesus is here driving home his teaching. He's using a parable to prove his point. And the details of the story, Ben, these are not hard to understand. These do not require imagination. There's a man. He's got a couple of sons. Both of them, he says, hey, go work in the vineyard. One says, sure, Dad, I'm in, and doesn't go. The other one says, I'm not going to go, but he does go. And then Jesus asks the Jewish leaders, which of those two sons did his father's will? And the answer is obvious. It is so obvious that even these religious leaders cannot come up with a lying answer to this one. They say, the son that went into the vineyard in the end is the one who did the will of his father. And now, in just a moment, Jesus is going to take this little story and he's going to show something significant about the leadership of the Jews. But before we even look at that point, we need to learn from the simple truth of the story. Now, let me say to you, I, I can identify with this story. Would you believe that there are times in my life, mine, when I give an instruction to one of my children that may or may not be carried out. It's tough to believe, but it happens. I might instruct one of my darling little ones to do something simple. Clean up your room, would you? Or make your bed or make sure you roll out the trash to the curb. And that darling little one might look at me and say, yes, sir. But the words, yes, sir, only mean something if they are followed with obedience. You see, to obey is not to say what you will do. To obey is to do what you are told. And how true is that of the Word of God in our lives? Just because you and I sing songs of our devotion to the Lord, just because we pray to God saying, oh, I surrender to your will. You know, you might even be the kind of person that does Bible study after Bible study. You watch teaching video after teaching video. You've got the Ligonier app on your phone and you've got the John Piper podcast. And as, the, as one song I heard once said, you know, I've got a, ta got a tattoo that says, I heart John Piper in Greek. I mean, you are just devoted, <laughs> devoted to what you have. But you know what? If you say, oh, I've got all this teaching and all this training and I am so smart, but you, just because you say you're going to obey doesn't mean you've obeyed one single thing. Christians, 
Words of obedience and love mean nothing if they're not accompanied by actions. Jesus has made this point before in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God is not impressed with empty words that have no follow through. God is not deceived by your lips because God can see your heart. So today, Christian, examine your heart. When you bowed the knee to the Lord and when you asked the Lord for salvation, what else did you do? By the way, isn't it funny this was Sunday school? I didn't plan this. I wrote this weeks before Sunday school. In order to be saved, you had to believe in Jesus, right? And in order to be saved, you had to say to Jesus that you belong to him. That he is your Lord. That you would follow him. If you have never once said to Jesus, I will be yours, I will follow you, you are my Lord. I don't care if you used words, but if you never communicated that some way to God, you are not saved. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without Jesus as Lord. So Christian, is your life matching your promise? You gave your life over to Jesus when you came to him in faith. Are you holding true to your word? God wants our obedience, not empty promises of obedience. God wants your life, every bit of your life. If you're a Christian, you signed over the title deed of your life to the Lord. Okay? That's what happens in salvation. If there's a certificate that says, this person owns me, you signed it over and said, here Jesus, it's yours. That's what you do to be saved. And it's not even a thing you do. It's just God's grace to faith. There is not one corner of your life, there is not one corner of your heart, there is not one corner of your soul that still belongs to you alone. Yes, you get to still be you, but you are the property of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I don't belong to me. Because if I'm my own master, I'm going to hell. Obey the Lord. Because dear friends, you and I have been bought and paid for. Bought by Christ. He is our Lord. And he is good. Obey with actions, not words only. Fourth point, last point. Receive grace and avoid wrath. Receive grace and avoid wrath. 31, the end to 32. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. 
And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Remember, I told you the Jewish leaders just gave Jesus their first honest answer of the day. Now Jesus draws the teaching to a close with a really frightening statement. The Jewish religious establishment is like the son in the parable who said, I'll go work in the vineyard, but he wouldn't go. The Savior tells this group of religious leaders right there in the temple courts, right there in their priestly garments and all their finery, you guys are on the outside looking in when it comes to going to heaven. Jesus says to these smug religious leaders, there are tax collectors and prostitutes who are going to heaven and you're not. And when Jesus mentions tax collectors and prostitutes, I mean, he is hitting these guys where it hurts because he's pointing to the kind of people that these religious leaders just knew they were better than. They looked down on these people. Tax collectors were often thieves, often cruel, always considered to be traitors to the nation of Israel. Prostitutes represented sexual immorality, right? Obviously, these religious leaders just knew they were better than tax collectors and prostitutes. But Jesus says, no, you're not. Because the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the sinners who knew they were sinners, they heard the message of Jesus and they turned from their sins and they found the grace of God because of who Jesus is and the religious leaders would not. They wouldn't listen when John the Baptist said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They would not repent even after they saw sinful people, ordinary people, be transformed by the grace of Jesus in the gospel. And so the religious leaders are out and the sinners are in. This ought to make you so happy. The beautiful thing here, this is paraphrasing John MacArthur. This shows us there is no religious act good enough to get you into heaven. And there's no sin, if you'll repent and come to Jesus, big enough to keep you out of heaven. You can have been the best person or the worst person in history. If you don't turn to Jesus for mercy, you face the wrath and the judgment of God. If you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven. So receive grace and avoid wrath. What do we learn? What do we learn from all this? We see here that the person of Jesus, his identity, his authority, is at the very center of the most important question that you will ever face. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus has the authority to command you. If you rebel against Jesus, you will move your heart to dishonesty. You will move your heart to face the judgment of God. You will harden your own soul. And the call of God is to repent. Turn from sin. Trust in Jesus. Surrender more and more of your life to Jesus. Every day when you get up, think about, is there something more of me I could surrender to the authority of Jesus? Because you can always let go a little more. Understand that his will and his ways are present in the Bible and that's there for you to obey. Turn away from self. Find hope and life in Jesus. And thank Jesus for grace. None of us are good enough to earn our way to heaven. 
Even when you've been saved, guess what? You have not yet been made actually perfect. Have you noticed that? We're sinners, folks. We're weak. And we got a battle. We got to fight. We fight sin. How do we do it? What do we see in Hebrews? We fight it together. As we encourage one another, as we show mercy to one another, as we help one another worship, as we help one another follow Jesus, that's how we fight sin. You know, at the very end of this gospel, the last words Matthew will write down for us, Jesus refers one more time to his own authority. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. At the wrap-up of this whole thing, you know what Jesus says? I have... How much authority did Jesus say he had? I might have missed it. How much did he say he has? Every little bit? Where does he have all authority? In heaven and on earth? Those are the only places we know, by the way. Jesus said to you, I've got all authority over you. And he commands you, come to him. And he commands you, when you're his, help others become disciples. And he commands you to obey his commands in the word. And he promises you he will be with you forever ever to give you love and support and grace. So may we, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, bow to his perfect and his gracious authority. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord, we are such a confused people. Because in so many ways, we know exactly what we're supposed to be. And we know your truth. And yet, we lie to ourselves. And we fight against you. And we hurt ourselves. This day, break us. If you've got to break us in half, break us in half. But I would pray for just that sweet, gentle, spirit-led softening that would make us, everyone, obey you, love you, follow you, worship you. God, do in us what only you can do. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.